hello, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is a podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a Food Network patriarch on the podcast to talk about his passion for hospitality and why he's investing his time and resources with his hospitality group to find the next rising star in the restaurant world on his new Food Network show. He is an award-winning chef, restaurateur, iron chef, chopped judge, co-host of The Kitchen, and the star of the new competition series, Big Restaurant Bet. It's Jeffrey Zakarian. Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast. The first time you and I met uh, was on the set of The Kitchen, and I made everyone in the cast play beer pong. So, Oh, that was a long time ago. I know. It was a while ago now. I can't believe that. But great to reconnect with you here on Food Network Obsessed. How's it going down there in sunny Florida today? Uh, it's a beautiful day here. This is our beginning of our summer, so it's uh, lovely. We've had some lovely weather. Well, I'm going to do my best to fit, you know, the last four decades, numerous accolades, accomplishments, restaurants into our chat today. There is so much that we could cover and talk about when it comes to your career. But I think what is most impressive to me is really your commitment to hospitality and this innate desire to really take care of people. Where do you think that comes from? Insecurity. (laughs) No, I mean it. I mean, there's, you know, when you're, you feel like flawed and you're not, you know, you sort of have some insecurity about you want to be liked and you want to take care of people because you always want to like please people. I've always loved eating and everything around food. And so once you get that bug, hospitality is in the next room. Have you gotten rid of some of that insecurity or is that still there at all times? No, it gets worse. (laughs) You just get better at hiding it as you get older. (laughs) (laughs) You try to please people and there's no pleasing people in this business. It's just you have to learn how to play ping pong and chess and have a very tough skin. And uh, in reality, it's a very hard business and you need to hear the good and the bad all the time. You can't hear a lot of bad and a little good or a lot of good and a little bad. They got to be around this. I think that applies to, yeah, all facets of life, uh, television as well, um, having that thick skin, which we'll talk about. But let's rewind to more or less the beginning of this culinary journey of yours. You know, you, you attended culinary school in the early 80s when choosing that path as a chef wasn't what it is today. What early experiences in your life guided you to that decision? I went to France for a, a, not a gap year, but let's call it a gap year. And I was studying in Worcester State College, Massachusetts, a course called Urban Studies. And I did a paper and I had to travel to Europe for that paper. And I ended up in uh, Nice, uh, Monton, and I'd never been. And my paper was to, to study the advent of gaming from England to the south of France from 1895 and the trains and how it, how Monaco sort of became Monaco and the south of France became mm-hmm. the south of France and the casinos came there. Basically a place for English people, wealthy people to hang out and gamble. That was my thesis. I wrote zero pages, <laughs> spent the money I was given very rapidly on food and pastries and I was stunned by the culture of France. And coming from a country that was 300 years old and going to a country that's 3,000 plus years old, the food and beverage and hospitality scene is baked into the cake and it's baked into the earth. And that way they live was very attractive to me. Everything was strategically curated around the meal. And that just really hit home for me. 
coming from a Middle Eastern family where we cooked everything homemade and it was always about the family and eating, I felt like if this, this culture is the culture I want to immerse myself in. And uh, after a year, I came back, spoke decent French, decided not to go get an MBA and decided to go to uh, the Culinary Institute of American Hyde Park. And that was in 1981 and the rest is a long, insecure journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try to touch on a, a little bit of that. But I, I'm curious to know, was there kind of an aha moment during that year abroad where you had a meal or an experience that really, you know, it clicked? Like you were like, this is what I want to do. Yes, there was. There was one particular meal period uh, where I was dining. And I, you know, when I was over there after a couple of months, I discovered the Michelin Guide. What does that mean? And, you know, they're all crosses and forks and the routes and, you know, where it is and what village is located. The Michelin Guide is like a fantastic guidebook. Forget food. It has every single place to go in Europe, rated where to go, what to not to do, what to get, you know, how to advise. And it's sort of, it was Zagat 100 years before Zagat was around, right? And so, after I learned about that, I learned about the level of restaurant, the level of cost, the level of the meal. I read about all these chefs. You know, we didn't have the internet, obviously, in 81, but we did have Michelin Guidebook and it was a big, thick book for each area. So, there was intimate, detailed writing of every restaurant, every village, every experience, where the chef went to school, you know, who's the chef. And I was fascinated by that. I ended up traveling up through Europe on a train, uh, which is great because France is basically the size of Texas. So, it's a very, very easy to get to know the whole country in, in uh, six months or so. And I went to Paris. There was 21 restaurants rated three stars in, in France. And I think Paris had 12 of them. But there was also 52 stars and there was also 75, 101 stars. Now, there's a bit more. My whole goal was to eat it as many as I could. I remember going to one, it was called Vivarois and it was run by a chef called uh, Claude Perrault and it was three-star Michelin. You know, for a young kid at 21 years old, going into these restaurants alone and eating was very intimidating but I felt very comfortable and the service level was so astounding. A young American alone at a table and I was ordering wine and asking the, the waiter who spoke perfect English, what does he recommend and, you know, just the level of polish really got me. And then Monsieur Perrault came out and Claude Perrault was this tall, thin gentleman, looked like um, a cross between Omar Sharif and Cristiano Ronaldo. And he was thin and had this white outfit on, long apron, like impeccably groomed, handsome. And I was like, hello. And I was the chef. And then his wife, her, her name I believe was Christine. And she was Chanel and blonde and like Brigitte Bardot sort of looks. And she ran the front of the house and he ran the back of the house. And I'm like, this is fantastic. It was so intoxicating. And it was like a play. You know, I look at it back and now it's definitely theater and, you know, restaurants are theater. So, but I was hooked. I was like, this is, this is what I want to do. You get to take care of people. You get to, you know, dress fantastic. You have all these people coming to you. You get to learn about food and wine and everybody is, comes to you. You don't have to go to them. So, that was something that, that, that experience was a, a, a turning point for me. So, I discovered the restaurant business through the front of the house, not the back of the house. Yeah. I want to talk about, you know, how your career kind of evolved since that moment, since going to culinary school. You graduated, you started your career at Les Cirques in New York under French master chef Alain Siak. You were able to to strengthen your, your skills from culinary school. So what do you remember about those early days in the kitchen, in the back of the house, and especially in an environment that attracted such notable figures? The years from 1982 
1986 at Le Cirque were the best years of my life. I'm not talking about after having kids and getting married. I'm talking about as far as formative years, full out, 100 miles an hour all the time, but working. But working with luminaries, Sir Maccioni. In the kitchen was David Boulay and Terrence Brennan and Charlie Palmer and all these guys were there. And it was like, you didn't know. We didn't know what the hell was going to happen, but look what happened, you know? Sirio ran a shop, which is why I was so happy to be there. He was an Italian, but he, he loved French. But he, loved, he was Italian by nature and lived in Montecatini. But that restaurant drew a crowd every day for lunch and dinner that I've never seen since and I've opened over 14 establishments. Nothing's like that. Nothing. He took care of every single person. He was there lunch and dinner, every service, unless in July. And in July, he would take six weeks off because he closed the restaurant and that was what we used to do back then. There was no days off. But you had six weeks off in July and we'd go, he would go to Montecatini and, you know, uh, I ended up going and staging and doing apprenticeships at all the restaurants I had eaten at. So, when I came back, I was like way ahead of most of the other cooks. But it was the remarkable university that I, I don't know many places that could recreate that because in 82, 83, 84, 85 and 86, you would have eight to 10 people in the kitchen. Now, you know, Danielle would have 30, 40 people in the kitchen. And we would do twice the covers. And it's not, and I work with Danielle because Danielle Ballou replaced Alain Sachs. So I actually worked for Danielle and he brought three times the people on board. So I realized I had this education and I had this broad swath of experience in all the stations. And when I told him I was leaving after four years, he said, please stay. I, you know, he said, he was very gracious. He said, you know, I've never met an American that knows so much about French food. The only reason that is, is because we didn't have, we had to learn every station and jump around and be an expert at everything. So, you were making Dover soles one day and filleting, uh, you know, uh, wild becasse or marcassin or boar and then you're making souffles the next day and, and chocolate cake and you have to know all this. So, it would to me, it was like, yeah, you should be able to know all this if you're a chef. It's very different now. You know, you get very specialized. You know, you might move through, it might take you three years to four years and you might not even get to the pastry station. So, that was why it was so valuable. I, I didn't realize it back then. I always, I was like, whatever. But a, gr a great way to be, working with the greatest chef and restaurant tour in the country who on any given day would bring in fifteen dollars to $20,000 worth of white truffles and that's in the 80s. Wow. And bakehouse and squid and Dover sole and fresh crab and everything, shad, shad roe, every luxury ingredient and odd ingredient that you, has ever been made came to us because we, we were the center of the universe. And so, I I had the restaurant learning. I learned from Syria how to take care of people. Then I learned from Alan and all these incredible ingredients that cereal allowed him to order. He was like a French chef, but he was like a kid in a candy shop because he never had these in his other kitchens. He could order whatever he wanted. So, for a, it was such a, a mind-blowing multimedia experience of gargantuan proportion. I had no idea what I was learning at that time. But now, I have this library of things in my head and a lot of them I've forgotten because I haven't, it's been so much stuff. And when I go back and look at my, some of my notes, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember making that. That was funny. I'll just do it again. I haven't done that in 30 years. That's what really is what it was for me. It was the best yeah. experience. Uh, and everything at, that came out of that was obviously, you know, just the in environment of New York City and just the, the leisure domain of all these people that you're working with is incredible and the friendships. So, that was a great time. I, I can't, I always speak of it. That is remarkable. Yeah. How thankful are you that you came up during that time where you had this opportunity to really, you know, learn every aspect of this business? 
it doesn't I, I I can't say it happens a lot. I really can't say it happens a lot. I mean, I mean in Europe it happens sometimes like that, more, more so. Mm-hmm. But everything is so quick nowadays. And I don't know if you're given the proper time to perfect those techniques. I don't know. I'm 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 not gonna speak because I, I see chefs that come up and I, I I see a definite hole in their basic knowledge of things. You know, they might be able to make spiralized olives. <laughs> but you know, they you know, it's tell asking them to make a black truffle omelet, baveuse. Uh, so we can charge eighty five dollars for it. It's, it's they don't really they're not used to it and they're not very good at it. So it's more restricted learning. It's deep into restricted swaths. It's like specialized cooking, and it's hard to find someone who is very well rounded in all you know avenues of French and Italian. It's very hard. It's hard to be anyway. It's hard for anyone to be like that. But I'm blessed. That's all I'm, I wanted to like end up by saying that. And the guys that are in that kitchen. We're blessed too. What do you think draws you in particular to? The world of fine dining. Obviously, you had these, you know, very life changing experiences in France, um, kind of experimenting and and tasting and and having those those types of dining experiences. But what what draws you in? What keeps you interested in that world? You know, fine dining has changed. There's a there's a showmanship to fine dining that I initially loved. I think the showmanship level has changed drastically. I think there are places that still do the showmanship game very well. Maybe Thomas Keller, maybe the grill room, table side stuff, things like that. But the game now is very different and fine dining is very different. It's far more expensive, yet oddly, it's far more accessible at the same time. You might like say, well, let's go downtown and let's, I know this great place on Bleecker. We're going to, we'll have some tacos. And then the next lunch, you could be at like Jean Georges for lunch in Nougatine and ask for the menu next door. It's it's that type of relationship that's changed. So you pick and choose what you want when you want it. That you would never want to eat finding all the time. I would never. That's just me personally. Uh, you need to have that that shake it up. So if you feel like a pizza, you, you go to Brooklyn and or and you go get a great pizza, or you go to uh, Una Pizzeria Napolitana downtown and get one, or you go to Frank's or Little Frank. You, you know you, you know where to go. You're not looking for a three star dining. So back when I worked, there were seven restaurants in New York City that mattered. Le Cirque, Le Copasque, uh, Lutece, Le Pavillon, uh, the old one, the Coach House, American Place, Le Caravelle. So those those seven restaurants, that was it. I mean, there was no Bond Street. There was no, there was nothing in between. It was fine dining or everything else. So now this fine dining and everything else, as much as you want of it. So you pick and choose the time you want to step into the fine dining and step out of it. And there's lots of fine dining. So, you can go to an Asian restaurant downtown in a basement and get two-star cuisine or three-star cuisine and it's a 12-course 12, 12 omakase. Or you can go to Pavillon and Vanderbilt and get a four-star you know, four six-course menu and very French and fabulous and all the, with all the, you know, accoutrement. So, there's, that didn't exist, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the 80s. And so, it's nice to see that. And it's also nice to see that fine dining chefs are going back to where they came from and opening up great bistros and fantastic modern taverns. And they're incredibly successful because the knowledge of food, partly through Food Network, has really transposed everyone into a knowledgeable enough to want to go try these foods and f- try these restaurants. Oh, this guy came from New York. This guy came from San Francisco. This guy came from like Austin. And, you know, they worked at La Circa. They worked in Golden Door. They worked with Thomas Keller and they worked all over at the all these great chefs that worked in the big cities and the great restaurants and now they're coming home to Wisconsin and to like Nebraska and to Knoxville, Tennessee and 
crazy places you would never think it has fine dining and they're bringing their version of fine dining there, albeit relaxed, but still really great mm-hmm. food. So, uh, that's what I'm most excited about happening. It's not the democratization, that's the wrong word. It's the recategorization of fine dining uh, into multiple categories. You opened your first restaurant town in 2001 after, you know, 20 years basically of, of working for other chefs, working in other kitchens. And by the way, town, you know, critical acclaim, three-star review in the New York Times. Four years later, you opened Country, another three-star review. Having worked for other people and then knowing what you wanted to bring to the restaurant game, uh, what, what was the most top of mind for you when when thinking about just, you know, the customer's experience, thinking about, you know, that experience that you had, you know, in France 20 years prior? When I did Town, which is probably my purest effort at redefining American cuisine, it's a very French restaurant. No one knew it. And I worked at a place called Arpeggia, did a stage there in Europe, probably my favorite fancy restaurant in, in, in Europe. It was Clean Lines, David Rockwell, Tons of, you know, we had a bar chef who was a crazy man, a, peca- a, pa- a pocket tech. He opened and he opened Dom. He just opened Dom in the city. And we had him invent cocktails. He would set the bar on fire every night. <laughs> and I was like, this is fabulous. And everyone said, we're going to get closed if you do this again. You know, we had to stop it. But he did it in a way that was so elegant with a black tie and he made drinks that was spectacular. And we had a balcony and we had cocktail beverage upstairs. We had music, which was like... In a fine dining, it was like, mm, what's going on here? We had a great DJ and then downstairs we had the dinner. It was great and very sexy and candles. That's what I wanted to do. I'm like, okay, guys, we can, we can, we can have some fun and have great food because at the end of the day, everybody wants to have fun. That's what I brought. The, that was my first effort at sort of saying, let's just make the same food, but let's have a bit more fun and let's mm-hmm. take the formality out of the wait staff. But let's really make sure the waitstaff understands proper European service. My staff and I hand trained with my every single person, every cocktail server, every every waiter. We sort of shook everything out of their brain about how service is supposed to be, and we eliminated a lot of the nonsensical interruptions of a diner that continue today at a shockingly awful rate to the point where you can't sit down and eat your dinner without being asked how everything is 15 times. And it's not good service. And they're being told it's good service and this is the way we do it. We have to touch the table. You don't have to touch a table. Just look at the customer. If you see something missing, replace it. You don't have to ask them. And that's what people want. They don't want to be interrupted. So, we changed the dynamic of town. We did all that. And the waiters made a ton of money. I I said to them, you're going to make more money and you're going to do actual less talking to the customer. And it was like, they're like, what do you mean? I said, talk to the customer. I said, no, no. We want you to ask the customer what they would like to drink and eat. And if they have questions about the food, know the food as well as the chefs. After that, that's about it. Just get them what they want. If they ask for something else, say yes right away. Don't ask them. We never asked anybody how anything was, ever. Never would say, oh, how are our first bites going? We would never do that. That was, you would be out if you did that. And people remarked wow. to me, she said, the service is so good. It's, it's Things just happen. It's so, it's so elegant. It's so European. And I'm like, someone gets it right? (laughs) You're like, yes, thank you. (laughs) Someone gets it. So, that's what we, that was town. It was a very French restaurant that I just threw in music and a lot of cocktail service. And we had a bar chef. It was, we, 2000 we opened. It was like one of the first ones. You know, the other one was Angel Share and um, downtown and uh, I forgot the name, but Milk and Honey was the place that, you know, everyone would go after every chef to just like, it was just fantastic. And I love that whole cocktail vibe and the rebirth of the cocktail, uh, 
sort of society and making a proper drink. You know, started around like 97, 98, 96. And it was really, you know, town was really built on a lot of that. So, you know, that's what I started. And I, I don't think I've changed really very much. I've done some odd, small formatted changes of that, but it's still my philosophy. We still don't interrupt the customer. We still give very, very foundational classic food with lots of presentational changes, but it's very much what I learned and loved from Le Cirque. Stick around because Jeffrey tells us how he got his start on Food Network and gives us a scoop on his new show, Big Restaurant Bet. That's when we come back. So over the next few years, you you found yourself on Food Network as a judge on Chopped and, of course, winning the fourth season of The Next Iron Chef. Uh, when you were first approached to, you know, go on television, how did you feel about it? Well, it's funny, you know, because when I when I won Iron Chef, this was in 2011, I actually, I turned down Next Iron Chef. I didn't want to do it. And my my, my agent, Scott Feldman, was so angry at me because <laughs> I said, okay, I'll, I'll try. You know, I knew that Michael had just been one and I think I was, it was, I was thinking there were five or six and they say, would you be, like to be on next Iron Chef? It's the best one. It's with all the chefs. It's Marcus and Amberell and Michael Chiarello. And I was like, wow, that's, those are great, great uh, chefs. And uh, he said, it'd be great. I think you're going to win. I'm like, okay, so what do I have to do? He said, well, you have to basically be, be gone for 12 weeks. And uh, I said, I don't want to do that because I don't want to be, I had just had two young kids. I don't want to be away from them. And um, he said, well, you're crazy. I mean, this is a, you're not going to be able to offer this again. This is like, once I'm like, well, I, I, you know, if I have to be away for 12 weeks, it's going to be a problem. And then he called my wife. <laughs> True story. True story. Smart. <laughs> and he said, Mags, that's what he called her. Mags, you got to talk to G. I mean, I don't know what to tell you, but this is like, this is great. I mean, he's going to be, this is going to be a big, they're putting a lot of dollars behind this is a big deal. And, you know, Michael Simon, blah, 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 you know. And so, she said, okay, I'll, I'll, don't worry. I said, I'll, I'll call you, I'll call you back in a half hour. And she called me and she said, hey, I heard you just talked to Scott. And I said, yeah, you know, it's a problem. She stopped. He said, you're going. <laughs> just like that. I said, what do you mean? He said, we'll be fine. We'll come and visit you. You're going. I'm like, okay. That was it. That was it. And she was right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and uh, th- what got me through that show, and I later found out a lot of innuendo and rumor, but I later found out that no one expected me to win. No one, except really? Scott. No one. <laughs> and it wasn't because I was a good chef. It was not because of that. It's because no one really knew from the inner workings of the show, my experience at, in Europe and my experience at Le Cirque and then my experience of working in Europe after that. So, what I had was a library greater than just about anybody else there where I could pull mm-hmm. stuff out of my hat when there was a tough challenge where it would be both... Uh, interesting. I knew the story, the history, and I could actually cook it. That's really what got me through the whole competition because it's very hard. You know, you lose stuff. You just, you do lose rounds and you, it's just what it is. You don't win everything. But you know, it's those challenges when you're down and out that you got to do cook one thing in an hour and it's got to be perfect that I learned cooking with eight guys instead of 28 guys. You know, it all came. I'm like, yeah, this, this is the reason I have this. Memory, okay, I can do that. Give me that. I, I know how to do that. I saw it. I can skin that. I know what to do. I'll have it done. And that's where it happened. And um, no one knew that. And so, I was, you know, I worked very hard. That was part of TV. So, you asked me that question because it was just, it all came back to the, the, the Cirque days. That's that's what that happened. But my first show was Chopped and that was in 2007. That was great. I didn't understand the show. 
it sounded corny <laughs> and gimmicky to me. And then when I did it, you know, I understand like the first season wasn't that great. And then the second season, it took off. And here we are, I'm um, 13 years, I've been still doing it. And I just, now we film in Knoxville. What can I say? I'm blessed. And and you have a very exciting new venture with Food Network now, a brand new show, Big Restaurant Bet. So this is where you are actually investing your time, your resources with your hospitality group to find tomorrow's, you know, the next restaurant mogul. So you're giving eight hopeful entrepreneurs a chance to prove themselves in a series of real world challenges to determine who has what it takes to run their first restaurant. What about this show kind of drew you to it? There's a lot of similar, kind of similar things about giving someone a, a chance in a franchise, finding, you know, the best of the best, but then what do you do with them? And I think for me, it was like, you know, let's find someone and let's help them open their dream restaurant because you need help. You can't, you can't do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And the best chefs in the world fail for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with the food. They get the food perfect, but they don't, they're underfinanced, they're undermanaged, they're undermarketed, they're, everything is off. Everything is not correct as well as how they start and how they finish and what they're saying. Their message isn't what's on the menu and their menu isn't germane to what the message is. So, those things are really important. They're more important almost than a lot of things now. So, I would say that a restaurant is 30% messaging, marketing, logo and being on brand and being true to who you are. The other 40% is the front of the house, how you serve, how you greet. All the stuff I talked about, like how to take care of the customer and not bother the customer or interrupt the customer and finance. And the uh, 30 or 40 left is food. So, everybody on the show know they have food pretty much. I mean, some of them still don't, but it's the least barrier for them. Mm -hmm. It's their strongest forte. But what they realize in the show is it's not the most important thing really. And I, I'm looking for some of that, but the stuff I can't fix, I can't fix your sense of urgency that you don't have. I can't fix your stubbornness or your lack of empathy and how to lead and how to how to teach. I, I can't fix that. That comes from like who you are as a person. It's very hard to get through past that. I can fix any error, marketing, financing, how to do this, how to spend money, how not to spend money and how to create a dish and how to fix the dish so it's better. That's, mm -hmm. that's easy. So, it's a great show. It's a leap motif to the restaurant business. It's going to show people who don't know how to open a restaurant, like what it really is involved. Not just the screaming and yelling in the front of the house and back of the house. <laughs> it's not that. It's like a lot more. This is what we do for a living. And this is, this is the group I do it with. And so, we're, we're brutally honest. We're uh, empathetic and we're helpful. We don't want to step off a cliff with you. We need to look for someone that we can... You know, I say to people, like it's almost like going to graduate school, right? Or choosing who you want to like take in the law firm when they graduate. No one's going to be at a 10 and no one's going to be at a two if they go to a great school. They're going to be fives and sixes and something like that. But you got to look for the sevens and eights. Okay. You can, you have the brain power and the bandwidth to get a seven to a 10. To get a three to a seven, you need more experience. Come back another day. You know what I mean? The uh, viewer is going to see that. He's going to see the real what we're looking for, they might be very surprising for most viewers. Like, really? I didn't, I had no idea this was that and this was that. I had never do, no idea that like say the most expensive part of a restaurant isn't the rent. They keep saying the rents are, you know, the rents, the rents is not expensive. The rents are 10 to 12% of your gross. If you're, if you know how to do a deal, the labor is what kills people. It's all yeah. that. It's misinformation and it's disinformation and it's mythology and it's tales that don't make sense. We clarify it. We really clarify it for people and like, wow, that's, I think, is what the big takeaway for the show is. And then 
we take a bet, we take a risk, we throw the dice. I mean, there's no, there's no, the success rate is still very, very hard in the restaurant business. You know, eight to 10, nine to 10 out of 10 fail, even with the best of intentions and the best of marketing and all the things that I'm trying to bring to the table to help these incredible uh, contestants. And they're really all great people. They really are. And they have great stories. What's like, what's an example of one of these like real world challenges that, that you're putting these people through? Well, we asked them, this was the first challenge and it's, it like petrified them. When I asked them to cook one bite, the size of my iPod case, <laughs> one bite, and one I want to taste your one restaurant. Bite. I want you to tell me everything about your restaurant with one bite. I want the mood, the attitude, where it is, what kind of restaurant, what's the vibe, where I want, I want to see your soul in that one bite. And you will be shocked. My, the judges were my wife and um, Eric Haugen who has his own consulting company now and he used to uh, work with me and they didn't know. And so, I was in the kitchen seeing this and asking what your bite is, what your bite is, what your bite is, what kind of restaurant you're going to open and you have to, you have to represent it with one bite, not an appetizer, but one bite and the judges are going to try to guess what kind of restaurant it is and you would be shocked at how good people did and how bad people did. It's a big deal to be able to do that. It's even a bigger deal to see the judges and nail it. And I didn't talk to them at all. They were off camera. They didn't see anything. And it was amazing how two or more of them, they could actually say, this is going to be a, let's say, I'm, I'm making one up. It's going to be modern French, uh, Vietnamese, and it's going to have a very uh, open open hearth and the, a, lot of, a lot of meat, a lot of meat uh, on the open hearth. And I knew the answer. So, I said, this is actually exactly that. This is XYZ and they want to open a blah, blah, blah. And so, it's possible. Mm-hmm. And it, it's an amazing challenge and it's off-putting because no one saw that coming. The people that did well, did really well. And the people that didn't do well, really had to like step on the gas and dive deeper to find out, listen, <laughs> is this what I really want? Do I really <laughs> want to open a restaurant? Because once you open a restaurant, forget your salary. It's gone. You don't have a salary. So, whatever you're making, yeah. and if you're making a really good salary as a chef, you're doing great. You have no, you walk out the back door at the end of the day, you go have a beer with your friends. Nothing, if something happens at the restaurant, it's not your problem. It's yeah. now 100% your problem 100% of the time and still you're not going to get paid. You might get a little <laughs> fee, just a salary just to make sure that you can live. But if not, you got to find that money somewhere else up until the point where we can afford to pay you. That's a shock to the system for most people. I tell people, be careful for what you wish for. <laughs> That's excellent advice across the board, again, in life and, and everything else. So I could go on for hours talking to you about the restaurant business, your career at Food Network, but uh, I want to finish things out with some rapid fire questions. And then we have one final question for you here on Food Network Obsessed. So rapid fire round, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Scratch golfer. <laughs> that's that's a good one. Uh, if you could cook dinner for anyone, dead or alive, who would be at your dinner table? I never knew my grandfather. I would like to cook for my grandfather because uh, my dad was a tremendous influence of me and uh, he taught me music. He's a musician. So, I, I would cook for my grandfather. Speaking of music, what is typically on your playlist at the gym? I have a very odd playlist, but it's it's sort of everything. I mean, I love, I work out to like Frank Ocean a lot of stuff in that realm, not necessarily workout music. So, that's, you know, Frank Ocean, Sinatra, like I'm all over the place. I have a pretty good playlist that I developed from working. I, you know, it's the same playlist on my restaurant. 
East Coast or West Coast? I would say East Coast. A book or movie you wished everyone would watch or read? Babette's Feast is the movie everyone should watch. It's a very dark, gorgeously dark movie. If you haven't watched and understood Casablanca, it would be hard for us to be friends. Okay. <laughs> Our last question that we do ask everybody here on the podcast is, uh, what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. You can time travel, spend as much money as you want. There's no rules. Uh, we just want to hear what, what your ideal food day would look like. Uh, I would gather up the kids and the fam. We would mm -hmm. probably start at home, wherever we were at home. Eggs, poached eggs, avocados, papaya, rashers of bacon. And then we would fly to either the Guanahani and St. Bart's or Eden Rock. And we would have, we'd do some surfing before lunch. And then we'd have a seafood tower at Eden Rock or uh, Nikki Beach. Do some more surfing. Get back on a plane. We'd fly to Naples and we'd go to Dadora, which is a little dump in Naples, and have uh, linguine with clams, which is life-changing. And then some uh, affogato for dessert. And we go to bed. That sounds like a beautiful, perfect day. <laughs> it's not bad, right? Yeah. No, I loved it. Um, and I love chatting with you and, of course, watching you for so many years on Food Network and definitely looking forward to the brand new show and, and seeing how that Me all too. unfolds. Yeah. Congratulations Me, on that. It is. It is <laughs> thank you. It's such great. Uh, it's, it's great to talk to you. And I have, I have a lot of uh, I'm so grateful. Actually, I forgot to mention how grateful I am for the Food Network to actually put up with me for the last <laughs> 15 years. But Jamie, very nice to talk to you and thanks for taking the time too. And thanks everybody behind the scenes for uh, uh, making it nice and smooth. So fun getting to know a little bit more about Jeffrey, and I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Don't forget to mark your calendars for the premiere of Big Restaurant Bet on Tuesday, April 5th at 10, 9 central on Food Network and streaming on Discovery+. Plus. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 